This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Seth. Hi, I'm Mr. Jim Moon. <laughs> I'm Mr. Jim Moon. My name is John. How are you doing? I love that voice. <laughs> and we're going to talk about uh, The Keep, a novel by F. Paul Wilson, uh, first published in uh, 1981, I think. Sounds right. Yeah, 81. Uh, in the introduction, it says something about uh, 1979 to 1981. I think that that's probably the writing of it, yeah. Sure. In the acknowledgments, mm-hmm. it says April 1979 to January 1981. And uh, I love that, uh, the acknowledgments, other than uh, to a professor of Slavic languages, um, it acknowledges uh, an obvious debt to H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, and Clark Ashton Smith. And I think, I've not read a ton of Clark Ashton Smith, but I think this is definitely yeah, in debt to those, and it, it, it makes it very Lovecraftian, Howardian anyways. I don't know how Smithian it makes. Uh, Jim, are you our resident expert on those guys? Or uh, Well, kind of Clark Ashton Smith, I mean, he was kind of, I mean, you could say he's, kind of, he's midway sort of between Howard and Lovecraft. Because, um, okay. I mean, Lovecraft... I mean, they, between the three of them, they did kind of, you know, you can piece together this secret history of the early years of Earth, the first age that's talked about um, mm-hmm. in, in The Keep. And, you know, because uh, Howard had his hyper, Hyperborea, King Cull, and all these other sort of ki- kingdoms and different lost times, and uh, mm-hmm. Smith did as well, and they all interlinked, and Lovecraft did cover it in Mount of Madness and at the Mound and other right. bits and bobs in his story, and they all sort of... Between the three of them, they have the secret history, but like kind of tonally, um, I think the keep is probably closest to Clark Ashton Smith because it has that sort of the high fantasy elements, the idea of sort of warring sorcerers from the dawn of the age of time yeah. and uh, monstrous survivals into the present. Um, but it's not as kind of the, the two-fisted, mighty feud kind of, there's no yeah. horror, smack <laughs> it, Howard kind of style. And it's equally not the kind of, there's something terrible in the castle. Oh, dear, I've gone mad of Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah, and then a lot of fainting. <laughs> it starts out with that. It, it starts out feeling very mysterious like that. But once you meet... Um once you meet Molossar, then I mean that breaks the Lovecraftian because you rarely meet the monster in Lovecraft. So you know, once you yeah. meet him, it's like, okay, this is not Lovecraft anymore. Nope. Well, that's it. Uh, Molossar is very much like a, a Smithian kind of evil sorcerer. Uh, you know, big speeches, very evil, very clever, <laughs> a lot very of, cunning. A lot, of mm. a lot of conversations. Uh, it's a very conversational book. Uh, I, I was telling you guys, I watched rewatched the movie. Um, I watched the movie when I was a kid, probably 1984 or whenever the movie came out. I watched it on HBO, I think. And uh, I didn't know what to make of it other than I loved the music, and it was really cool to look at. Uh, but uh, then watching it today, I think it's the ending's terrible because the sword turns out to be a laser beam <laughs> or something <laughs> from a million years ago. And it's like, hey, that's not a sword. That's like a long tube. And then he sticks a like a gem on the end, and it's like, well, that sucks. Whatever. I want a sword. <laughs> when, I first, when I saw the movie, after having read the book, it was my first understanding that, oh, wait, 
I didn't realize it, but maybe this happens every time. Maybe the book is always better than the movie. Because <laughs> I loved the book so much, and the movie started off, it seemed to me, on the right track. Mm. And then in the end, when here comes our bad guy, and it seems to be that thing from Krull, it's just this huge, lumpy, turdish... <laughs> I am the one who is on the high It was like I was thinking it, it was so, sort of like Skeletor, but less impressive. Yeah. And mm. I I couldn't stand the costume. I couldn't I couldn't stand the, anything about the dang thing. It ended so badly for me. I think I think the special effects on the on the monster are terrific. I just don't think they they match what's in the book very well. Although I think it's a nice interpretation. It seems like early on he's just smoke, basically. Then he's bones, mm. and then he's flesh, anybody and then here? he's pretty much... Then he's like a Masters of the Universe figure. Yes, exactly. Yes. Did anybody here ever ever read any old uh, Marvel comics? Does anybody remember a character called Despair? Uh, a de- He's a demon of, of fear. Uh, black with a, with a sort of white skull-like face. For some reason, young John when he read this book, always put despair in the part of the bad guy. That was my, that was my default appearance for our villain, who didn't who didn't really seem entirely villainous at the time. It was this. Yeah, yeah, totally. it, it was an interesting thing where yes, he's a bad guy, but at the same point in time, you were still thinking of it as possibly being the the prototype for Dracula. When you were yeah, thinking, well, that's what he says. Exactly. says. He says, I expected you to come in evening wear. When, <laughs> yeah. when you first encountered him and thought of him like that, he didn't seem like he was oh, a bad guy. Yes, of course a bad guy, but not that bad a bad guy. It was another, another example of sort, of sort of being morally challenged a little bit. Gee, can I work with this, I don't know, soul-drinking monster? I mean, he's not Hitler, and that's actually a point in his favor. <laughs> I, I think I think the resonances in this book. I mean, what's so cool about it to me is that because it's written after these guys, after World War II, and those guys are all. Pri- I, I don't think Smith lived much past fifties, uh, but you know, I, I've read a lot of Smith. But Howard and and uh, Lovecraft both died prior to World War II. Mm. Uh, they don't get the full. Uh, force of uh, the SS and you know the death camps and I mean the the kind of evil those guys are usually dealing with is it's much more of the uh, Dracula style you know yeah. monstrous hideous uh, evil I thought was so cool is this this book is it does a it it really says well can you can you look at different kinds of evil and say you know we'll use this evil to fight that evil and I think it it fits really well with you know. Well, there's the Russians, and they're not that great, but, well, we've got to defeat Hitler. Sure. Right? Yeah, it's a good metaphor for that, because, you know, Cusa is, um, Cusa is really, he's almost duped into that. Um, like, Absolutely. oh, great, this guy, these guys are oppressing my people. Great, I've got an opportunity here. Right. And I, I think that, that the, the, how that plays out in the, in the book is pretty amazing. There's, um, there's all these shades of gray. One of the, one of the things that Cusa says... Uh, after he gets his health back it, to his daughter, is that I could become chancellor, and I'm like, what chancellor? <laughs> <laughs> um, he just means chancellor of the university, right? 
which is quite different, I think. But um, it shows like that leap to power of you know the corruption of evil yeah. is, is already at, in motion, and it it feels so it, like he really has got a good grasp on on how the evil plays out, and then. And then when when uh, we finally get Glenn talking about what's going on, he's he's in the book a lot until you know we don't we don't know what he's doing or who he is. But when he finally is talking about it, he doesn't say you know yeah I'm on the forces of good. The girl keeps saying hey are you with the forces of good? And he's like <laughs> mm, not exactly no <laughs> opposition. Yeah, it's, yeah it's just the uh, yeah it's just the opposition. But um, I, I think that. This is a pretty amazing book uh, yeah. for. Is it his first book, first novel? I think it was. Of, uh, it's impressive. It's nineteen eighty one. I don't see anything prior to that. Maybe there's some, some uh, you know. There's uh, oh yeah. There's there's one demon song nineteen seventy. Uh, still pretty early though. Uh, yeah. 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 According to this, it was the first of six novels known as the Adversary Cycle. I, mm-hmm. for some reason, never connected that they were together. I read, I think, one or two of the other novels, but none of them impacted me as much as The Keep. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tomb is the one that I was thinking about doing, because I love, I love the idea of a, I love tombs. Mm. What, what's, uh, what's that one about, Jim? Um, well, The Tomb is the uh, first Repairman Jack novel who is as a as a cycle of his own which feeds in and out of the adversary cycle um right and um basically he's a, a mr fix-it character however you know if you ring him to fix a, a washing machine yeah, you probably won't reply but if you want a the a, a score settled sort of equalizer style right <laughs> repairman jacks your man he's that kind of fix-it <laughs> character um and I, I really i really enjoyed the tune but it kind of because Repairman Jack, I can see how he's got this long career, because he is a brilliant character, kind of sort of morally amb- a morally ambiguous hero, a man who kind of, you want that guy taken out? Is he a bastard? I'll do it. Mm. <laughs> um, and the, the tomb is, is, is another about another ancient evil, and this one it draws on um, ancient Hindu and, uh, Hindu and Indian um, uh, mythology, with the Rakosha, um, the traditional Indian demons. Um, and it's kind of, especially at the time in the in the eighties when it came out, it was a breath of fresh air to the kind of the usual kind of um, serial killers and mutant monsters <laughs> that were doing the rounds in horror fiction. It was, you know, it had that sort of by going into a, you know something that isn't drawing off either crime or universal monsters for its horror mythology was a breath of fresh air. But I, I, for me, though, uh, again, it kind of the keep did overshadow it because there's just. The Keep is just such a, a wonderful book with so much in it. <laughs> well written, too. I, I, I didn't find myself, you know, bored at any point. No. I didn't find myself confused at all. And and the anticipations that I was making were like, well, it could be this, it could be that. And then some of those paid off and some of them didn't. But uh, every time, you know, it was not worse than what I was <laughs> I was speculating, which... You know, I I sort of pride myself as a snobbish reader, so I like to be, uh, you know, I like not to be made to feel, you know, this book is beneath me, and I didn't feel that at all. It's it's not like super high intellectual book, but it it really is is uh, it it's deeply interested in in doing what it's doing. I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, so one thing that I thought when I was rereading it this time, which is, I mean, I had the paperback, which I um, fell apart on me eventually. And then I got hold of a, I found a hardback copy. <laughs> um, and I've gone back to it many times. But I've always, what's stuck on this reread is kind of, this is a novel that's kind of, it's written with the energy and verve and economy of a pulp novel. Mm-hmm. But it has all the themes and character and depth of a literary novel. And it's yeah. a beautiful synthesis. <laughs> I agree. Um, I think that's a good, ma- a good description. Um, it does have it does have a lot of energy, and you know, F. Paul Wilson he is very interested in pulps. I I was listening to on Protecting Project Pulp. They have a, a three part um, uh, pulp uh, style adventure set in I think San Francisco or New York uh, with you no know, detective, and he's he's dealing with Yellow Peril style stuff, and he he uses all the sort of racist language you would find in that old pulpy stuff and it's it could have been written back then um but uh yeah he's sort of a genuine fan of that it's not just like oh i uh you know i've heard lovecraft is good for sales or anything like that he was interested before everybody it seems even before um you know the the game the uh what, what did the call of cthulhu game come out i think he was into it before that uh, I think that was '83. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I I came across the novel and the the film in '83 and Call of Cthulhu all at the same time. And mm. you know, when I when I read the inscription, I said, "Oh, Doctor Howard Smith and Lovecraft." I said, oh, this is good. Oh, oh, please, that this this is going to be great. And the vampire as well. And uh, it, although it's not very sort of Cthulhu mythos or Lovecraftian, I really just dug the way he sort of brings uh, the gothic horror and the sort of the uh, the classic Lovecraftian Howardian sort of weird fiction vibe and melts mm. it really beautifully in a way that kind of so isn't story. just a lame reinvention of the vampire as a beginning of Cthulhu or a descendant of Toth Amon or anything really sort of naff or he's working on his own stuff. Mm. It, I mean, it, one of, one of the things I was thinking about is is it's kind of it kind of reminded me of uh, the way. You know, in the original Conan the Barbarian movie, the the, the bad guy there was he called Thothamon or what was it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, shoot, uh, whatever his name he was is. Clearly, he was clearly based on Thothamon, but yeah. he was uh, he was named after the uh, King Cole Doom. Doom, that's it. Yeah, Salsa Doom is he's got blue eyes. It's he's not got a great long, movie. Black straight. It's a great movie. Well, Long, you say so. straight black hair, right? <laughs> and he comes from an earlier age. I will right? yield to your tastes. Oh, I think it's a great movie. Very um, well. It has, he has <laughs> long, straight black hair. He's got blue eyes. He's he's uh, got dark skin. He doesn't look like anybody, right? He looks like a, he comes from a different group of people that are not around anymore. And that's also how our hero is described in this book. He's, you know, got red hair, olive skin, and he looks like an alien, right? He doesn't fit. He doesn't quite fit anywhere. And he, he says, you know, I have no nationality. I have no I, religion. I have papers, but I, I have no nationality, no religion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, we're, you know, we're fair. I mean, I think this is kind of a mystery novel as well, because as we're introduced to the characters and led down certain garden paths, we get, you know, we get a little, enough time with them to start uh, making assumptions 
uh, about where it might be going. You know, when we, yeah. we see this guy, I was like, oh, he must be part of some, uh, uh, I was thinking he was like a Templar or something, right? Uh, yeah. And, and what's he carrying in that box? I wonder what's in that box. What's in the box? What's in the box? <laughs> <laughs> it was too long for a normal-sized head, so... <laughs> Not sure, but uh, you know he's nailing. He he nails some gold pieces to uh, to a uh, a dock uh, when he steals the boat. He's got some sort of ethics going on, but he'll kill people. Um, yeah, but they, and, they weren't ancient gold pieces. I, I remember. No, no, they were modern. They were modern. But he's got. He, he, you know, he's he's not he's not deliberately burning bridges, but he is. Uh, you know, I got to get where I got to get it going. Uh, where is he coming from? Is it Greece? Portugal. Portugal. He okay. starts in Portugal. Okay. A small fishing village. Right. And I know the movie, they, they, they shot those parts in Spain. Um, and the rest of the movie was shot in Wales, I think. Or in uh, uh, studios. But uh, I, I, don't, I don't really picture what this, the keep looks like exactly, other than, uh, you know, there's what's on the covers. But... We have the nice, nice map inside the front cover of mine. Oh, which really? is, nice. Yep. Yeah, which was a. Uh, it's one of those things I always loved as a kid. I still love it now when you, when you open up a book and you get a little map. <laughs> I'd love to see that. If you want to scan it, I'd, I'd love to see it. Uh, I, I, I was trying to picture what it was like. In the movie. It's um, very simplistic, the map. I'll uh, mm, scan it. I'm opening it to my copy. Well, I'm sorry. I'm opening to my <laughs> copy. I'll, I'll scan it uh, right now. Okay. Excellent. Um, one of the one of the things I was picturing um, in the movie, they say something that was nice that I is not in the book, but I thought it was nice in the in the movie. They said, and the way they show it, it it looks more like a tomb than it does like a, a, a castle keep. But they they also said in the book, you know, this is strictly speaking, I think it was in the book, it's not a castle, and it's, it's not a keep. It's not because, a fortress or a watchtower. It's its own yeah. design that's unique. It looks like a, uh, the castle keep because that's the inner section, right? The sort of undefended walls. But in the movie, they also said, like, this thing is built backwards. The the large stones are on the inside, and the small stones are on the outside. Built to keep something in as opposed mm-hmm. to right. keep something out. Right. And that is that not... In, I don't think that's... Uh, if it's in the book, it's not uh, as big as... A big uh, focus. It's not underlined mm. the way it is, and I think, like to me, I I was right with Kuza most of the time. I was like, yeah, this that's a good alliance. I was like thinking, wow, that would be cool. Go kill Hitler, <laughs> <laughs> and then you know you might have to deal with this this guy. But uh, you know, the other guy was defeated. What uh, uh, Vlad was defeated, so it, it might not be so bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one thing I, I love love about this. I mean, one, one of the things the movie did, um, the movie sort of took the uh, Salem's Lot route. Um, yeah. That's like in the, yeah. in the novel of Stable Knot, you have Barlow, who's this huge Byronic vampire, not unlike a Molossar, prone to big speeches and, and, you know, screwing with people and playing, you know, mind games. And yet in the, the Toby Hooper film version, they turned into a mute Nosferatu. Uh, and the man film does the same to Molossar. They turn him into this Masters of the Universe hulking brute that uh, 
Yeah, and you lose you, get, you lose that sort of cut and thrust. What I love in the book is his seduction of of, of Kuzta. The way you know, layer by layer he lays out his game and yeah. you know plays. Oh, I'm an ancient five hundred year old vampire. I used to know right. Vlad, you know, and uh, yeah. and really, really. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of that kind of um, the Wallachian uh, patriotism that that is a oh, yeah. deliberate echo of, of what Stoker has his count saying when he talks to Jonathan Harker of. Mm. Um, and it's it's really such good fun because he's such a good villain because you think kind of as a reader for the first time you're going yeah well he's an ageless monster but you know he's a warrior there's a sense of honour can you know can, can I go along with him and these are Nazis for Christ's sake and we go we do go I I mm. felt I was going along with him mm. uh, and I almost I almost was like well maybe maybe that other dude's life the <laughs> guy with the with the sword, I mean, he's not that cool. I mean, well, let's say Wilson plays a very good game because you have the you know this mysterious character traveling, and he paints him very morally ambiguous, and you you don't know, you know, he could be the villain <laughs> because there are a number of twists in this which he does yeah. play off really well. Of um, and so you know by about two thirds through, you you are wondering, going, well, is is Glenn actually a <laughs> A champion, nice guy, or is he something worse? We're, we're in the position of... I think Magda is the main character, if there mm, is one. Sure. And we're in her position of, like, having to choose between uh, the two sides. And, you know, when when the when the, that confrontation happens with her father, it's like, wow. I mean, I, I was... I kept going, coming back to the resonance of the title as well, right? Mm-hmm. The keep, like it keeping him in there, yeah. But also, uh, Professor Kuza's keeping his daughter from having a life. Mm. There's uh, a lot of these, um, you know, these patterns of like, uh, who's going to do what? Um, the um, the layering of evil, right? Yeah. You know, if we if we do it at the top, or Rathalom's, I guess the most evil. Yeah. Um, Kemper. Uh, Hitler's next. Yeah. Right? Hitler, yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, then maybe, then maybe, uh, uh, what's how did Molisar, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then the SS dude. Then you know, somewhere above, uh, uh, above all the other uh, goody characters is is our um, regular Wehrmacht guy, right? Yeah. A, a war man. Yeah. 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 I like his character. Oh yeah, he was great. Yeah, and he has a nice little arc before he gets killed. Yes. <laughs> Up until that point, I thought of the book as more his story with Musa, yeah. and I figured he would turn out to be a bit, uh, turn out to be one of the heroes in the end. He's a victim, I guess. Yeah, I was expecting yeah. him to live uh, live longer too. But I think I think that that I mean it fits really nicely. One of the other things that is going on in the book as I always love looking at adaptations because they 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 focus in when they make a mistake. It shows you why something worked, and when they improve something, you can see, oh yes, that's where uh, that is actually slightly better. So in the movie, for some reason, they move the date up by one year. Oh, it's moved up to 1942 instead of 1941. Spring of, uh, uh, or I guess yeah, spring of 41 uh, is changed to spring of 42. And I was like, well. Actually, that is uh, quite a difference between what's going on. In 1941, Germans are masters of Europe, right? They, they haven't turned their their uh, offensive against Russia yet, so they they don't know what's coming. Um, and 
In 42, it's less clear that they're going to be masters of Europe, although they're doing pretty well in, in you know, Russia. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not like uh, it's all sunny because, oh, yeah, the Americans are mobilizing now, too. And that, that change, for me, I was thinking, well, what's the difference? In the book, um, you, re- you really see, like, no hope in 41, right? The British are the only ones holding out. Mm-hmm. Russians are against them. The only, you know, they have conquered all of continental Europe. There's, there's really no hope. What can't, what could you do except try and ally yourself with, with, uh, with some sort of evil? And, and what happens? Uh, Russia is allied <laughs> eventually <laughs> with the quote unquote heroes of, of world war two, you know, not, I, I think that that, that fits really nicely into the into the playing out because you know the German officer I think uh, uh, Seth you got a little yeah, drubbing yeah. down by F. Paul Wilson right yeah the, and uh, he misunderstood what I was saying I think I mean I, 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 yeah it's Twitter you can't really you know <laughs> but yeah why don't you say what happened well yeah I was um, and I guess this goes back to what we were talking about about the nature of evil and you know I was feeling you know even though these Nazis are despicable people you know they're still people and they're getting their throats ripped out and I was like. Well, this is somehow this is kind of humanizing Nazis in in a small way, and, and it's asking us to consider. Okay, well, what which evil is worse? Is is the um, kind of temporal human evil of the Nazis worse, or is the um, is this kind of timeless um, chaos and malice worse? And you know, I had to. I ultimately, I think the story sides with. Well, we got to take this guy out, even though he can take out Hitler. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you can't really you can't really make too close a deal with evil. Is kind of I guess the balance it strikes. But on the other hand, uh, we did, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Kind of. I mean, uh, but I, I think that that's that's it's really nice because Varman is 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 going along. He keeps saying, "Well, maybe I'll resign." Well, is that really the same thing as? Uh, as giving up, right? As as uh, fighting against them, resigning? No, not exactly. You should be, you know, in that tower trying to take out Hitler or whatever. <laughs> he should be. Uh, I, I think it, was it in the book that that uh, he said Magda says. Um, on yeah, oh, it's in the movie. Okay, so in the movie they also, I guess, because Gabriel Byrne is just a young actor at this point. Um, he plays the SS dude. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, it's really good a cast. I mean, uh, Gandalf plays uh, Kuza. Oh wow! Mm. Oh what? Um, and he he has a similar confrontation with evil. You know, like <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, it's it's a very good cast. Uh, and they instead of having them being World War One uh, officers, uh, Vorman and uh, Kempfer, they are in the movie. They are potent. They they were talking about the Spanish Civil War and the SS guy saying, uh, I was with the Condor Legion, which is the Nazis in, uh, in, in the Spanish Civil War. And, and I think um, Vorman says, if I had fought in that, he doesn't say that I, he did, but he says, if I had fought in the Spanish Civil War, it would have been on the anti-Nazi side. Um, and there was, a, I looked it up, there was a German 
anti-Nazi movement in, you know, an anti-Nazi legion in, um, or anti-fascist legion in, in the Spanish Civil War. And they were people who could never go back to Germany, right? They, they had been, uh, they fought against Hitler before and they were kicked out. Now, I, I, I guess the way it was phrased there is that, you know, it was a secret that I was. So we're seeing that this, this is a guy who is not, strictly speaking, a Nazi member, but, you know, they're the Nazis as a group. He's working for them, yeah. He's, he's taking orders. Ultimately, uh, he's with the, with the baddies. That feeling, I think, is, is very, you know, it's a slippery slope when you start, you know, collaborating. And it's, uh, the, I think even Molisar, when he's trying to, as part of his method, right, he says, you collaborate with Wallach, anti-Wallachians? <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's very powerful. It gets right in under your skin, I think. Well, I find it very interesting that you get this kind of, uh, not all Germans are the Nazis distinction with Wilson mm-hmm. draws, which for, for 81 um, is sort of quite ahead of its time, I think. Cause, I mean, <laughs> the, the 70s were still, um, you know, selling the two-fisted, you know, ac- Axis and Allies, you know, goodies versus baddies kind of punch-ups. Um, and this kind of, you know, making the point of kind of, you know the German people. They they got Hitler was you know was great when he started. He was a powerful leader. He, re, he restored the economy. He got Germany back on its feet. It restored German pride after the the terrible sort of drubbing and they got in the First World War and the absolutely economic incompetence and appalling recession that went under the Weimar Republic and uh, Hitler got Germany back on its feet and reunited the different provinces of Germany. But then as they got into the war and the SS start to rise, people were going, whoa, hang on a minute. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it is is historically accurate that you did have this this tension between the ordinary troops increasingly and the SS. And this was ultimately why, you know, Germany would be defeated, was there was Mm. this dissension in the ranks and, uh, um, you know, there was the German army, and then there was the Nazis. And, uh... <coughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, there, was a, there was a reason there was dissension in the ranks. Hitler had this <laughs> horrible habit of promoting people based on, not on merit, but on how quickly they agreed with them. There's, mm. he, he had a variety of skilled generals who were behind the lines doing practically nothing because they argued, that is to say, gave their opinions too often. I'm just saying... Well, I'm, yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, there's kind of, um, I saw a thing about uh, uh, the psychology of power, and uh, he had a thing, this TV series, he had a big section on Hitler, and his promotion <laughs> strategies were, were, was, a disa- was a disaster because he did, he'd, he'd always promote the man who agreed with his ideology rather than the man who knew what he was talking about. <laughs> and, uh, I hate to say it, but that, that always makes me think of George W. Bush. <laughs> Who's agreeing with me the most? Then you're clearly the right guy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I don't try to. Not trying to inject politics, but oh god, do I hate George W. Bush? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Well, I have I think to you, say that at least once a day. I think that. I think though that you know, like uh, the the we got the opposite with Obama. Right, right away we were supposed to hear that line about about, uh, you know, he's reading this book called Team of Rivals. He's not going to make the mistakes. Mm-hmm. 
that Bush did, mm. right? And I was like, oh, that sounds good. That, you know, in this, uh, this is like, yeah, you know, this is how argument works and how you find the truth is by not just, you know, going with an ideology. You, you, you really figure it out. But, uh, yeah, he, I guess he got us out of, uh, or not us, he got <laughs> a number of Americans and I guess the Brits out of uh, Iraq. And then, oh, wait, they're going back into Iraq. Oh, right. How did that, uh, yeah, okay. We tortured some folks, but uh, we're not, not actually going to prosecute any folks, right? The, the going along with evil uh, seems, seems to be still with us, this and problem. This is why I almost interrupted before. The concept of evil is really ephemeral. I mean, to the, mm-hmm. to the Nazis, the, the Russians were the greatest evil. Uh, that everyone's everyone's point of view is going is going to be culturally biased at one point time or another. That being said, boy, were the Nazis lousy guys. I'm not. Yeah. Arse- oh, yeah. I'm, saying, I'm just <laughs> I'm saying not that not for them at all. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm just saying that I was. I loved in the book how they sort of drew a line between the German soldiers and the Gestapo to the point that I think they formed two ba- two different camps that hardly mixed. In the keep, if I if I remember correctly, it's been a little bit since I reread the book. Um, actually, about ten years. I just uh, I just desperately love this book. This book was the second actual book I ever read. By which I don't mean, of course, I read Encyclopedia Brown and such like that. Those those really aren't books. I was bored one day, and I told my mother there were no new comic books, and she said, "Well, read a, read one of my books." And that's how my mother started me off on this. I read The Beast Within, and that was another example of, boy, did I love this book. And then you watch the movie, and the movie is like, it's a giant cicada? What? Has anyone ever seen the movie Beast Within? (laughs) I've never heard that. Oh, I have. It's a very crazy movie. (laughs) But the book was actually pretty good. I liked the book, and The Keep was the second novel I read. The Stand, not, not The Stand, The Shining is the third novel I ever read, and that just set me down down my path. I still have bales of these paperbacks of my mother's that I think she thinks I threw away, but no, she she was uh, she was addicted <laughs> to book clubs, and I loved I loved this 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 style. and The Keep. It was written in just such a beautiful way. It it took me. I think I was. 15 at the time. It just took me and dragged me along with it. And I have never looked back. I have never looked back. God, it also, I think, prepared me for Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is a dungeon dungeon hunt, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that prepared me because I was already playing, but it made it more interesting to me. My gaming mm-hmm. style changed after this. Also, is, am, I the, am I the only one to whom the, it was the first time you ever heard of these books, you know, the Pentecostic Manuscripts in scroll yeah. form, the Dunord translation of the Book of Ibon, the seven crypto, crypt, cryptical books of Hassan, and here, the Unaspricklichen Kulten of von Junst. Ah, I pronounced that one. <laughs> These books are priceless, universally suppressed and forbidden throughout the ages. So many copies burned that only whispers of their titles remain. In some cases, it has been questioned whether or not they existed at all. And here they are, perhaps the last surviving copies. 
and they were the books were just so fascinating. They made me want to find out what stories were these books connected to, because he spoke of them as if they had actual histories, and I didn't think he was just conjuring them out of thin air. So this book also led me to Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny the the role they play in the in the story is basically they don't do anything, it's right? Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But Kuzi uses them as his excuse uh, to be, you know, I'm working on spells and stuff. Right? <laughs> yeah. He's talking to the Nazis. He's he's explaining it that way. But uh, when when we finally hear the explanation for why they're actually in there, um, I think I think. Um, I don't think that Molisar actually says why you know they're in his his castle or anything. Uh, it's but Glenn explains it. He says he Glenn, yeah. uh, he secreted the books in the, in the keep because they have knowledge of evil, which must be and preserved. And you can't destroy but, knowledge, right? I thought that was really nice. Is even if it is evil knowledge, you still have to preserve it, right? Right. Um, it's like it's it makes me think of like when I was uh, a younger person. I'm not very sophisticated. Uh, Younger man's clothes. uh, You know, it was probably around 1984 or 5 or something like that. I was thinking, thinking, well, Hitler's evil, then nobody should read his book. But now, uh, you know, he's got... But I was thinking, like, okay, well, maybe they should be allowed to read his book because he was, again, he was pro-book burning, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but it's kind of like, you know, you're a publisher, and you say, well, somebody's got to publish uh, Hitler's Hitler's uh, Mein Kampf, uh, but I don't really want to be known as the publisher who publishes Mein Kampf. Um, what do I do about this problem, right? Um, we, what do we do about this problem? Well, I don't, I don't really know what the solution there is, but um, basically, what I would say is, you should publish it and then say this book is horrible. No one should buy it. <laughs> No, you just publish it through University Press and put a heavy price tag yeah. on it, as they often do, yeah. <laughs> where a paperback yeah. is suddenly... Yeah. Even though it's public domain, right? Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, it's, because it's, it's, it's pure evil. Uh, it's full of evil. It's not very well written. Um, and, uh, and yet it, it's a historical document, and it helps uh, under, us understand what, what's going on. I mean... Lots. I think it was so heavily published that like everybody's house had one in Germany. You know, it was like not things that they wanted. It was super subsidized or something. I think you had to have a copy. It was one of those things. That if they came into your Pretty house much, and you didn't yeah. have a copy, you're you're in trouble. Yeah, like it was Scientologists like, owning a owning a copy of Dianetics. Yeah, it, pretty much. Except everybody had to be in Scientology. Right? You know, um, it's pretty pretty heavy duty. Um, well, this is it. It was kind of, you know, the Nazis, and there was a huge cult of personality to it. Mm-hmm. Of um, you know, kind of crucifixes came down, you know, pictures of kings and queens came down, replaced with portraits of Hitler, and then you had the Hitler Youth. And it's kind of, if you didn't have a copy of Mein Kampf in your home, maybe you weren't as committed to the the German cause as you might be. You might be suspect for suspicion. Yeah, um, particularly we've got things like the Hitler Youth of. Um, um, this, um, Which was mandatory. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the thing is, is you know, you can sort of let the adults slide. You know, Grandpa, he fought in World War One. He doesn't really understand how the world is today. But the grandkids, they're definitely going in. You got to, you know, it was like, you know, maybe Grandpa's not needed right now. Not until the end of the war when that's all that's left, right? But 
the the thing is, is you know, little kids were were forced into. Uh, I don't know if they were all forced into it, but they it was mandatory. You couldn't not go. <laughs> and if you were, if you made up some excuse like my little boy's lame, that was actually like he he can't walk. That was like worse, right? Because that means maybe he he's not fit for. Um, uh, living on the earth. Yeah. Not really. We will send him to a camp where he can be with other boys like him. Yeah, oh, exactly. Man. And it's it is hor it's horrifying. So, but it's also what's even more frightening is kind of <clears throat> the way kids get behind things wholeheartedly. Oh yeah, of, um, monsters. Uh, there's um another novel that's roughly uh from the same around the same time as the Keep about the Second World War. It's a, it's a children's book called The Machine Gunners. Uh, and in that, there's a crashed um, Luftwaffe pilot who's on the run in the north of England, and he's hiding out. And it, it, he's kind of very like Warman. He's kind of an ordinary German who's been caught up in this, and he's really doubting, kind of, well, has more than serious doubts about the Gestapo and the Nazis in charge. You know, and he says he sees some school children, and, he, you know, he hides, because in Germany, you know, school children are the most terrifying of all. The last place you criticised the regime or questioned your, your superiors was in the earshot of children because they'd report you as soon as a drop of a hat. And uh, that, that, that's right in 1984 mm, as well. Remember mm, that the the little the little girl is is an informer. She follows somebody down, and even when it turns out to be uh, you know nothing, um, they're still praised for being in good informers. It's like, oh my, this is the most monstrous thing you can informing on mommy and daddy. Yeah. But people, but children in that situation hardly really understand what's going on. They're, they're learning yes. the rules. Is that, it, oh, that, that's always been a thing that horrified me. The thought of children turning against their parents because of the, I've read too much about, about China, about uh, China during the cultural revolution. It, mm. it, it, puts me in connection with what must have gone on in Nazi Germany at the time. Just, uh, also There's a really good uh, West German movie from 1959 uh, called Die Brücke. I don't know if anybody's seen it here. I've heard of it. It's a black and white. Uh, it's pretty hard to get. But it's about, uh, it's near the end of the war, end of the war and... Uh, uh, some Hitler youth are, you know, conscripted into the Volksturm, which is just old men and young boys, right? And they are given an uh, MG42, which is a big machine gun, and told to defend the bridge. Um, and, of course, they do, but and they fight valiantly, but it was, like, for nothing, right? It's completely for nothing. The war is basically over. There's some Americans on the other side, you know, crossing the bridge. And uh, they're killing some Americans, not very many, a few of them. Um, and then they won't give up. And it's like just super downer movie, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, I don't know if this is, it was a, yeah, it's, yeah, this event occurred April 27, 1945. It's a true story. It's like just, oh, fuck, what a waste. Yeah. <laughs> what a waste. Um, oh, finally I know why. So I have repeatedly thought of Doctor Who whenever I've thought of this stupid movie, and I uh, no, I, I couldn't remember. And now I've, I've been looking through the through the history. It was filmed in a slate quarry in <laughs> North Wales. 
mm-hmm. where I think over and over again, Doctor Who would wind up confronting Cybermen. I'm trying to look at the history <laughs> of that specific area, but I swear I've seen that area in at, le- in at least a dozen episodes of, well, you know, old Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now there's, there's a couple of couple of quarries that get got used a lot by um, British TV uh, and um, uh, the British film industry. It was one of their go-to locations, I think. I remember like I, the, 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 the quarry in the uh, keep. There's, al- there's also yeah. There's also um, I think there's a version of Bo Jester's filmed in the same quarry as the keep was. <laughs> Yellow filters, different lights, and hooray! Yeah. <laughs> I know we made, we made reference we re- reference to Gandalf and such, Ian McKellen mm-hmm. and such, but considering the history of, of the of the story, I think Magneto would be a, a better comparison. <laughs> oh, absolutely! <laughs> nice, absolutely. Well, if we're talking pop culture references, the other one uh, I think is very strong, and I, I don't know if, if it's because J. Michael Straczynski is reading the same stuff as as uh, F. Paul Wilson or if uh, Mike J. Michael Straczynski is, had read um, F. Paul Wilson, but the the first age and the second age and the third age, which is also Tolkien, right, as well, right. Uh, or I guess the fourth age as well, uh, is um, that sort of, you know, great forces of evil left or go- good or bad or chaos and order, right, the Vorlons and the Shadows from Babylon 5, this oh. is very much like the same sort of thing. It's just a, it plays out on a much larger scale in Babylon 5. Um, but it, it has the same sort of feel because, you know, the Vorlons aren't really good, right? They're not the forces of good. The Shadows are traditionally what we think of as evil, right? They, they're corrupting and they lie. Or maybe they're not liars. Like, I don't know. They're corrupting and they're they're black, <laughs> scary. <laughs> um, uh, but the Vorlons, uh, you know, they they are like mommy and daddy, right? They're telling you what to do. Um, and so the ultimate uh, triumph there is that you know we got to make our own way. Put put these old uh, old gods to bed. You go fight yourselves. We're not going to be your pawns anymore. And uh, I think that that's interesting because that's kind of what happens at the end of this book. We've got our hero. He says, well, maybe I'll die. That's okay. And if I don't, well, that'd be that'd be cool because I like this girl. Yeah. Maybe I can finally die. Grow old. Well, and he debates um, sharing, you know, um, agreeing to a truce, which I think is the other, uh, mm-hmm. the whole appeasement uh, uh, exactly. Theory of World War Two. Yeah, share Poland. <laughs> exactly. Um, it, I assume that that uh, because there's this book called The Adversary Cycle that it it's not the end of the story here, right? Uh, who's read the Adversary Cycle books other than the tomb? I guess I've read a couple of others, but I've not not read them all. Um, but I know, I know uh, uh, Glaken or Glenn does come back in a couple as an older an older character. Okay. Um, it must have aged from the, from the nineteen forties. Well, I think Repairman Jack meets him in one, and he's an old man. Oh wow! Uh, uh, I can't remember which one that is, or whether something I gleaned on a wiki. But um, yeah, Glaken's still still around and keeping an eye on things <laughs> into his dotage, but. <laughs> Um, there's a, there's a, another um, one I was reminded. I'm watching the TV show called The Strain, which is based on the 
uh, a book by Paul. I want to say Paul Hogan. That's not the, <laughs> that's a different Hogan. Guillermo del Toro and del Toro. Anyways, um, and that I, I'm seeing it. It's a retelling of uh, Dracula as well, but the United States standing in for England, sort of a larger scale. It's kind of um, it's kind of like uh, Salem's Lot as well. Um, you know, they're, they're nesting and they you know plan on taking over the whole community. Et it's it's sort of a modern retelling of that, and I I think that that's uh, that feels like it's influence. Uh, this book feels like it influenced later books as well. It's sort of you know another polish on the same old Dracula story, but with with uh, sort of other feelings about it because Dracula in in Dracula is much more supernatural in the in the strain. It's a virus, right? Um, but it has it has uh, a lot more gloopy, gloppy sort of blood, rather than just theoretical, you know, dr- two drops on the throat, yeah, sort yeah, of it, blood. It's sort of like a, a John Carpenter, an early '80s John Carpenter version of Dracula. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of the Thing often. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of tension there. Um, now, the other one thing that I wanted to mention is. Uh, the zombies. There's this book has zombies. Yes. Um, I guess they're not really zombies because they, you know, they're walking around without heads. Uh, you chop their head off, they still keep going. Some of them. Well, things these these are you know, uh, pre-Romero traditional zombies. Mm-hmm. In, in the truest sort of uh, Haitian voodoo tradition, mm-hmm. their corpse is animated to do a magician's will, and mm-hmm. used as slave labor. I mean, that's that is very that's you know. The flesh-eating bullet in the head is, you know, that's that's Romero's creation. <laughs> uh, but the, these are very sort of, you know, to, the, going back to, say, to Haitian, even, you know, to um, kind of old sort of medieval and English and uh, European sort of folk tales about sorcerers who would raise the dead to do their bidding. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's the rats as well, which is also uh, going back to, you know, Dracula and... And the strain mm. does a lot of the rats, um, but uh, you know that nagging uh, feeling. You know, why are the why are the boots muddy? Um, I thought, oh, I wonder if that's going to pay off. And and every time the the officer wonders about those boots, I'm like, <laughs> what does it mean? What the hell can it mean? Right? <laughs> oh, and the, the fingers, they're all they're chewed like the the guy who tried to you know crawl his way out of his tomb or not tomb his coffin, right? And didn't quite make it out before he died. <laughs> right. I, I wonder. What, and of course, every night they've been down there digging. Right. That's <laughs> such a. Uh, there is a point in the book where the reversal comes. Right. Where Molossar becomes Rasalam, which also sounds to me like it, it sounds like an ancient name. Like uh, M- Molossar sounds like a could be a you know uh, mid Dark Age sort of wizard or. Or uh, you know, Romanian lord. Whereas yeah. R- Rasalam sounds like either a Doctor Who g- <laughs> uh, Gallifreyan, or or it sounds like Absalom. You know, sort of biblical. Well, yeah, I just have that biblical ring of so Absalom, uh, Balaam. Yeah, um, those kind of um, names are kind of a lot of a lot, a lot of vowels, a lot of A's and O's vowels in. Yeah, and then so where so more so I just sound more Middle Ages. Can it recall sort of Klingsor? Of uh, the Teutonic myths, mm-hmm. um, and obviously, uh, obviously Mordred as well. 
Yeah, I, I was, I, you know, I was going through the names, and I, I love because in fiction you can make up any name for anybody. Uh, you, you, your choice can help your story. So, uh, Warman, I, I don't know what it means in German, but it sounds in English like war man, right? He's just a soldier. Yeah, I mean, war in German is Krieg, so I don't. Right, so it's not. It's but not. It, the sound, the assonance in English still works. Yeah, and and then Kempfer literally means fighter, yeah. right? Um, Magda is short for uh, Magdalene, right? Which is Mary Magdalene. Yes. Okay, so disciple of Jesus, etc. Uh, and um, Kuza is actually uh, is a boyar, was a boyar name. Uh, so like a high lord in Romanian area. Um, so it's funny because he's saying, Kusa, oh, you're a boyar. Yeah, I think Kuza is the same root word you get the English count from, I think. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Um, so there's there's a lot of resonances in in all that. Um, but I couldn't get a handle on, you know, Glen. Glen just means like, you know, valley sort of thing. Right? It's not... <laughs> Not, but Glaken, it doesn't sound like a. It sounds like an old word, but I, I didn't really have any resonances off of that. Did you guys have any clues? It made me uh, think well, of Glaki. <laughs> yes, I was just going to say that. That's that's that oh, Lovecraftian ring to it. Yes, Glaki. That's that's the first thing I thought when I read it. Who is Glaki? <laughs> uh, Glaki uh, is a, a British great old one invented by Ramsay Campbell. Uh, uh, and it's a it's a great. Um, slug-like being that dwells in a, a crystal city at the bottom of a deserted lake and, uh, oh. and also raise the dead uh, for its own purposes it's served by <laughs> by corpses that it uh, impales on its back and <laughs> controls the <laughs> spines in it implanted in them wow <laughs> the inhabitants of the lake uh, I really that's like that's the one story. yes yeah. uh, and recently he's done it, he revisited with a, a marvellous novella called The Last Revelation, Revelation of Glarkey Nice. Um, the other uh, the other thing I thought of while reading this story was I've been doing all summer. I did uh, the spongy fun yoga cycle with my students. Get get six year olds, seven year olds, nine year olds, eleven year olds to read uh, <laughs> Lovecraft and then uh, illustrate the uh, the poems. You know, little sonnets. Um, and one of the ones we did was the courtyard. Which is, uh, I guess, it was partially inspiring um, the Neonomicon book that Alan Moore did, uh, the comic book. Yes, yes. Um, I think I think it actually started off as the courtyard and then became expanded into that. And uh, and it, that has a what was the drug in that called? It starts with a G or something as well. Um, and. Uh, Aklo, no, yeah, Alco. that's it Alco. Alco or Aklo, something like that. Um, and it, it's basically you don't want to, you know, you might think heroin's bad or you know meth is going to make your teeth fall out, but Aklo or Alco, really not going to be good for you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to start having pseudo appendages. Mm. Uh, your reality will start to fall out. No, reality, <laughs> yeah, be screwed up. But the poem itself, um, it has the courtyard, it has the man uh, that sort of, he ties it in with, um, uh, Moore does, he ties it in with, with Innsmouth, and it, I can see that because it, we've got that in here. But let me just read the poem and, and then see if uh, you can see why I was thinking about this poem when, when uh, uh, I was reading The Keep. 
poem goes, It was the city I had known before, that ancient leprous town where mongrel throngs chant to strange gods and beat unhallowed gongs in crypts beneath foul alleys near the shore. The rotting fish-eyed houses leered at me from where they leaned, drunk, half-animate. As edging through the filth, I passed the gate to the black courtyard where the man would be. The dark walls closed me in, and loud I cursed that ever I had come to such a den, when suddenly a score of windows burst into wild light and swarmed with dancing men, mad, soundless revels of the dragging dead, and not a corpse with either hands or head. <laughs> wow. That's it's like, wow. Evocative, goodness. Very evocative, but it it totally doesn't tell you what it's about, right? No. <laughs> there's, just a guy, there's a man, there's the protagonist, he's going to some fishy town. Um, I was like, okay, so Moore turned it into like he's some guy going to score drugs from the man, <laughs> I think. Um, but the 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 dancing, the soundless revels of the dragging dead. And all the corpses, no hands, no heads. <laughs> it's so evocative. When we may see the the headless corpse in the, uh, literally see the headless corpse in the text, right? Wow, there's a headless corpse there. <laughs> um, it, it it makes me think like, okay, <laughs> what can you do? Right? You can't chop them up into little bits. He's still going to come after you, right? Yeah, exactly. There's, there's no there's no stopping them. Um, and and when when um, the first two soldiers they show up in in the uh, Kempfer's room I think it is right and they drop down on Kempfer's bed is it Kempfer or is it Warman? It's Kempfer. <laughs> it's Kempfer, right? Um, and he's sort of surrounded by these you know disgusting corpses. It's like what the hell? I I was I was not knowing why that was happening. It was and then like. There's a lot of questions. There is this flipping point in the book where the name changes from uh, Molassar to Rasalam, and we suddenly start not <laughs> believing what Guza believes. And at that point, I start going back and questioning things like, okay, that okay, now those muddy boots make more sense, right? The there's one thing that I couldn't figure out exactly, and maybe it fits in, but. Remember the message that's painted on the wall or carved into the wall with blood? Um, it said, uh, leave my key. Yeah, like enemies. Leave yeah. my house. Leave my house, right, yeah. I was, he doesn't want them to leave. He wants them to stay. But he's, it's basically, a, it, it's, he's, yes, he's not trying to drive them off. He's trying to lure them into staying by, you know, oh my gosh, what is this mystery that we're confronted by? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's 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 what he's really good at, right? When he goes to Kuza, he actually knows all the answers to Kuza's questions. He's shaping him to be what he wants him to be, right? He says, who is this Hitler, right? He already knows something uh, about what those answers would be, right? He wants to shape him. But we, as readers, are buying into it. I, at least I was all the way through to the point where, you know, yeah, this, okay, now the girl's meeting this guy, and he's not so clear on what's going on. Uh, do you guys completely buy into it? Were you taken in as well? I mean, I know we don't really have any evidence uh, against it up to that point, but 
uh, it feels like almost like I was tricked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I think normally it, in books we don't feel that. Mm, well, the thing I think the, the moment where you should go, hang on a minute, is where um, uh, Kuzo and Magda are talking, and then sort of Glenn he's overhearing, then gets involved in the conversation, mm. and he, he just there's something you two have both overlooked. Why would this creature who fears the cross live in a keep? Studied with them everywhere, <laughs> and you go, bloody hell, yes, I'd forgotten about that too, <laughs> mm-hmm. because you so buy into uh, Molossar's "I am an old count" in a Transylvania routine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even though they leave my house, flee this place, Englishman. Exactly. You know, it kind of it plays so beautifully on all the the uh, say the Draculaine harmonics. Right. Um, you, you you fall into step, and even though you kind of, yeah, you probably shouldn't be making deals with this guy, but <laughs> you know you can <laughs> yeah. you can understand why he's tempted to in the situation. But even even writing it in in you know that old dead language, it's it's like well wait okay he either knows that they can't can't read it or he he's you know like he, he can't be both right he can't be both um, ignorant of the fact that they can't read it and, and thus require the services of somebody who can or they or he's being sincere, leave my house, right? It's like, right. which is it? Well, um, no, no, I see it is just kind of it it, makes, it's a mystery, yeah. but it's, it's, ter- it's terrorism. It's psychological warfare. Yeah. It's kind yeah, of, but I'll it write something in blood, harder. a message which you don't understand, which means A, you've got to say... It'll put the wind up them good and proper, which is food and drink to him, and it ensures it'll draw more people to the keep. Yeah, I yeah, that's, that's a good point. Mm. But it makes him much smarter, right? Like, it's meal and it's, a bait for another meal. He he is so much smarter than he appears, like, or at least he says. And and in the end, when you know he's pleading with the, you know, let's make a deal with um, our hero. Glaken, it, it, if he doesn't feel that like manipulative, he's just as Kuza is super manipulative, right? When when the when he's talking to Kempfer, he's talking one way. When he's talking to uh, to uh, Wa- uh, Warman, he's a little less that way. But he can totally manipulate Kempfer, right? He's like, um, uh, I want my daughter to go to the village, right? He says to Vorman, yeah. <laughs> and, and Vorman's like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. What's a good idea, says Kemper? And he says, uh, well, we were just discussing whether my daughter should go to the village, uh, says, uh, or his daughter should go to the village, says Vorman. And then uh, Kuza says, I forbid it. <laughs> it's like, if you, want, if you want to manipulate a Nazi, you, you just say, this Jew wants something, right? He'll do whatever <laughs> the opposite of that is. Um, and that's super, you know, good, you know, high level brain thinking, right? You know, double, double bluff or whatever it is. Right. Well, if, because Kuza has it, um, we and we see a, him operating it. It does, I think, not it, it. It allows us to accept it also in Molossar because I feel I felt like I was cheated somehow, but I also didn't feel like I was cheated because actually one of the characters is doing exactly that. He's playing a game, right? But we're seeing it from Kuz's point of view. We're not seeing it from Molossar's point of view. We never see anything from Molossar's no, point of view. Which would be neat. But. That, that's just going to sound odd. It, it's something that popped into my head while you people were talking. 
which is awesome because I'm getting lost in this podcast. Like I'm listening to it. Um, the Dracula mystique that uh, that Molisar Rassalam is is uh, putting forth. Is it just me, or am, are we supposed to assume that this ancient sorcerer entity, whatever, has read Dracula by Bram Stoker? Or seen it, any of I the think, movies? I think he's telepathic. Uh, I, I, think that, I, I was thinking that too—that he was maybe, if you will, reaching into people's heads and go and going, "Okay, this is a nice image. I'll use this." And yeah, th- does he know who? Do you get the idea that that he knew, knew somehow psychically who Kuza was in the first place, and this is why he writes his message yeah. in Romanian? But while while the words while the, the letters are Romanian, the words aren't Romanian. Old it, old uh, Slavonic, yeah. Pre- precise, precisely. Is he going? Huh. I'm going to need this fellow out there. Da 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 da. And sing, yeah. sing, sing. Ah, Kuza. Well, yeah. I bet I'm, I better leave uh, something that only he could only he could really understand. Zing, and here it goes. Yep. I, I really hadn't grasped that until just now because every time I read this book, I'm 15 again. Mm-hmm. And fifteen-year-old me didn't have the slightest. It didn't have the slightest understanding about what was going on, as as far as the mindset of these these people. I ha- I suppose I had an image in my head that it was taking place in a world where there had been a Bela Lugosi, uh, a Christopher Lee style Dracula that he, this being was basing itself on. But I was never really thinking any deeper than that. Well, is, uh, he's smart. Volman mentions, uh, as he is in America, having seen Nosferatu and having seen the American Dracula films. A pirated version. And so therefore it's kind of, when when the Germans come to the keep and and release him, if he's first kills, I'm thinking he's picking up the idea of vampirism. Uh, But I think also he knows of vampirism because he was playing the vampire in the Middle Ages. (laughs) Yeah, but it's also, I think he was well aware, I've just, I've just put this together in my head now, it's kind of, because remember, uh, Kuza is the world's leading authority on the keep. Him and Magda have visited many times. Right. And again, oh, in, in, you're in, right. Yeah, in the, in, the imprisoned Rasalom, Mosla, whatever you want to call him, he would have been aware of them, because we do get a couple of sequences in the book from his point of view, and he's one of he, he sends the crippled one's daughter returning, and mm. it's well before she goes, to, she gets nearly gets raped, and he goes to save her. But he senses everything around that's going on in the keep, so he'll have known of them, and that's why he wrote that le- that message because he knew he could draw Kuza, and you, <sighs> he knew probably Kuza is probably the person he knows in and out psychically. Yeah, he's had a lot of time to yeah, think <laughs> and observe observe him and uh, eavesdrop on his thoughts. He hasn't been sleeping exactly; he's been drowsy. Mm. He's been waking up every time a visitor comes by. I also thought it was interesting that it says uh, nobody stays in the keep at the right of the beginning of the book. Nobody stays in the keep. Why? Bad dreams. Hmm. Nightmares. And, of course, there are no... Everyone sleeps fine. So Molisar is turning it off, right? Yeah. He's not trying to drive anyone off. He's trying to keep them there. That's right. Mm. Um, And is it... You know the bad dreams are are just a natural result of of the uh, of you know hanging out near this really angry uh, you know sleeping demon sort of whatever it is. Well, it's when he, or, I think it's when he was imprisoned. 
um, bad dreams were the only sustenance he could get. Hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe. He feeds on fear, and so that's the yeah. only way he can actually reach out is influence people's dreams. I mean, that's a Lovecraftian thing, is, you know, mm-hmm. they've begotten their images upon mankind through visions and dreams. And, and Molossad does the same. When people stay in the keep, you have a really bad nightmare, and he gets a few fragments <laughs> of right. psychic energy. Huh. However, once he's free, he's not interested in crumbs. Right, right. That's good. Um, there, there's a there's a lot of of stuff going on in this book, and I'm I, I'm amazed how much we've got out of it. Yeah, me too. I I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was. Uh, by the way, this map looks great. Oh, thank um, you. It looks a lot like uh, how how it does in the film. It was not. I couldn't really picture it uh, in the book. Um, I know, like I I see all the elements there. You know, there's a secret door, and there's the you know there's the mountain and all that stuff but I I I was trying to th- I, I like the way it was pictured in the movie you don't get to see much of it it doesn't look like a normal courtyard or anything like that but yeah it is this helps a, helps a lot I think to oh thank you get it get it I've, 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 I imagine that the village was farther away than they show in the movie, it's basically, you know, right next to it, just across It's just from over the, the drawbridge, isn't it, in the movie? It's just over the drawbridge, yeah. And it's not even a drawbridge, right? It's just a, it's just a bridge, because it's not really a, uh, a defensive fort at all. Although this one, it does have a, uh, a defensive element at the top. Um, what do you think about the idea of, of uh, Glenn, or Glenn, what's his name? Glecken. Um having built this and just left, left it there with like uh, all the stuff about the Pope, you know, I was oh, totally, right. so yeah, I was like, Oh yeah, that, that makes sense. The Pope's, they forgot about it. They've been paying for it since the, you know, the dark ages and they just haven't, haven't thought about it since then, but the money's still flowing. <laughs> um, but didn't, didn't it say like this redheaded guy came and beat up somebody who, who was fiddling with the money. Yes, the innkeeper's father, the former innkeeper, who kept some going right. back and skimmed off the top. <laughs> right. Um, and I thought that was, uh, you know, like, okay, so he's he, he's trying to live his life. He's trying to, like, you know, have wives and, you know, enjoy life, drink wine, whatever it is he's doing in Portugal, right? Uh, but he also has this responsibility that he never finished off. Um, and somehow he's connected. So when... And Molossar starts waking up, I guess, or the, you know, the gold, uh, gold and silver cross is is uh, fiddled with. He like sits up straight in bed and is like, "Oh my God, I gotta go." <laughs> <laughs> Just, he, they're, they're, they must be some sort of telepathic or psychic or something. Well, it's because he's got the 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 half of the sword. Cause the, right. the, okay. the, the, the battery for the uh, enchantment ah. of the keep is, is the buried hilt and he has right. the sword which in turn preserves him um, and it obviously is like when the um, repairs weren't being carried out he felt the power of the keep weakening through the sword so he turns up what's going on, slap him about <laughs> make sure it gets, kept working <laughs> and then naturally when the actually is a breach it's kind of bollocks <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, really got to sort this out now once and for all yeah <laughs> well it's just because he didn't go further than Portugal <laughs> yeah it would exactly. have been really convenient if we were in Chile and he was like oh son of a gun I guess I better steal a boat 
That would be a while. <laughs> um, the events don't take place over that period, a longer period of time. In the comic book, it really makes you know the dates clear. I think the dates are also in the book, though. Yeah, they um, are. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I, I was, I was reading the comic book with one of my students, and I, I pointed out, you know, look at the date on this. And then on the very next page, Molasar makes his first appearance, and it's uh, the thirtieth of April, which is, uh, I believe, is Walpurgis Nacht. It is indeed. And I, I, you know, like I'm saying to my student, you think this is a coincidence? He says, yes, it's just an accident. Uh-huh. Or, he oh. said something like that. And I said, well, yeah, but he could have chosen any time of year, right? If he, if he wanted to make it even more obvious, he could have, you know, just last day of October, right? Mm. Um, and he, it, I mean, that would have been so obvious that I would have got it. The few yeah. Years. Well, yeah. I didn't know too. about Walpurgis Nacht until relatively recently, but. It seems like uh, that you know that's just good, 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 uh, good writing and planning. And if it is an accident, uh, it's a very good one. Um, now, one one thing that I know can't be an accident is uh, the thing about the birds. Remember? Oh yeah. Oh yes. So that's that's a wonderful little barometer of evil. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah. You know, all the birds go quiet. You know, something evil looks wrong. There. Yeah. Mm. And the and the birds here, they don't. They don't. Uh, they don't nest in the in the uh, the keep, mm. which is impossible because birds nest any goddamn place they can. And uh, an abandoned keep would be perfect, up high, away from yeah, predators. Yeah, high places. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, that, like you're saying, the barometer of evil. When the when the evil starts spreading into the village, um, I noticed it doesn't affect uh, the daughter Magda, but when it spreads into the village. Um, the birds die, mm. right? The two little birds in the nest. Mm, that's right, yeah, yeah. And, you know, for no apparent reason. And and uh, the innkeeper becomes the, like a horrible person um, when before he was just, you know, trying to preserve his family. Uh, and then I thought that it was really good. The ending is, is, it is like this. It says, And far above a blue-winged bird with a beak full of straw fluttered to a gentle perch on a window ledge of the keep in search of a place to build a nest. Yeah. It's like, okay, he's definitely dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, no sequel possible, right? No, it turns out to be wrong because the book's successful and he's got more to say, I guess. Uh, but that's that's it, right? That's the ending because a blue-winged bird with a beak full of straw, Yeah. you know, no problem. Finally, I, I, got, I can put a nest there. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, he does mention um, other uh, the possibility of other Moroi, um, and someone asks. Uh, I think Magda asks Glenn if there are others like him. He's like, "Well, maybe. I'm not. I'm not quite sure." So that's where I imagine the other books going, mm. sort of like a Highlander, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it was a bit Highlandery too, wasn't it? These immortals having to fight each other across time. I mean, that's what the explanation is in Highlander two, the worst movie ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Ends up up being like all these laser beams and people from the planet. Zeist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yes, that is the worst movie ever made. (laughs) However, um, the, the lack of explanation given in the first Highlander movie, I think is what makes it so terrific. We have no idea what the fuck's mm, going on. Yeah. The start. There's this guy chopping somebody's head off, um, and then there's this old guy with a weird accent. Um, there's the quickening. There's the quickening, and we... What is n- it? Not sure That's the it. quickening, McLeod. 
You can tell me what you are. No, I'm not. <laughs> and he's, he's Egyptian with a Scottish accent. Spanish-Egyptian Highlander, yes. Well, <laughs> actually, I thought that made sense. It simply meant that he had roamed around the world so mm. long, his accent was incomprehensible. There was a little <laughs> bit here, a little bit here. But at one point in time or another, he spent an extensive amount of time in Scotland. Scotland. <laughs> Well, do you think there's any influence uh, between? Uh, I, I, I was trying to think about after after reading this book. I was trying to think. Well, what I know where this its literary roots are pretty clear. It's Dracula. It's Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard Lovecraft. But what about? I mean, this is obviously not completely connected. But other than other than this book and I guess the movie, what where does Highlander come from because that's just the immortals. I never heard of this. That it's sort of a new thing, isn't it? Well, it's kind of a, the idea of people having magic swords that uh, drink their power. I mean, I'm sure that's kind of in all kinds of a uh, Howard. There's aren't magical, right? Yeah. Well, we, 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 talked about, uh, we talked about Volsung Saga, and you know, there's that idea there too. And not necessarily drinking power, but the sword. You know, the sword being tied to a family and generation that sort of thing goes way back. Well, the Highlander, though, he, he carries around like a Japanese, uh, whatever it's called. Katana. Washabi or something. Katana, yeah. <laughs> What's it? Washashiri. Yeah, or wasabi. Wa- exactly. Wasabi. He, he cuts his wasabi with it. Yeah. Um, it's very sharp. Wakizashi is the side sword. That's a shorter yeah, sword. That, that would be I know, problem. I know. I know. The Katana is the big one. I'm sorry, I'm right. So, so... It, it's it's interesting because it feels like in the eighties there was all these things like just suddenly pop up. You know, I, I was from the I was born in the seventies, so to me it was like where the hell did this come from? Because I I guess I hadn't read anything at that point or not much. Uh, so when you know Back to the Future comes out, I was like, hey, time travel! I like time travel. I don't know where I've heard of it before, but it's, this is it. And and then when uh, Highlander came out, like. I had no idea what a Highlander was, <laughs> and and then okay, apparently if you're from Scotland, you you have the power to chop people's heads off and live forever. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> but uh, there's no literary roots for it, is there? I don't. Well, think well there's, so. there's also bits and bobs. It's kind of um, the absorbing life force through killing people is um, Elric, specifically. Probably Michael Moorcock. But you don't even have to. You don't even have to 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 live forever. You, it, it's so strange the way the book, or not the book, the, the way the movie works. I mean, I there's there's a television show as well, which is just more of the same, uh, more of the same thing. It's just you know somebody's out to chop your head off this week. But why why are they chopping the heads off? Is it makes them more powerful or something? Well, that the head goes goes back to Celtic mythology. You, yeah, you took the yeah. you took. You, you took your enemy's head and took their power. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just did a story called um, The Red One by Jack London, and it's a really terrific story. With uh, the, There's a very Robert E. Howard-style uh, wizard, you know, black wizard on some island in the South, a Solomon Islander, who's, who wants to chop off the white man's head and put it up in his... In his, his Mundumugu tent or whatever it is, <laughs> along with a bunch of other heads. And you know the the head is the source of you know power and soul and mind and and if you chop somebody's head off, you're really saying something. Um, but yeah, I don't. 
I think the image of the head being chopped off and the guy still going, it's it's frightening. It's almost like um, it, it, these are unthinking soldiers. You know, these are un. They don't. They can't be stopped. They they don't they don't think for themselves. It's kind of like Nazism, I guess, is the idea. Maybe I'm making too much of the head head the headless <laughs> corpse. Well, I think the headless corpse is just a. I mean, it really bring, brings it home, and it is mentioned in the text when the the keep is overrun by by the dead. It's kind of you know the headless one really makes it clear. Kind of you can shoot this guy all you like, but he doesn't have a head. He ain't stopping now. Yeah. <laughs> But it is it is very symbolic because I say they are, they are puppets of of, <clears throat> of you know the, the dark sorcerer's power. They're complete. They're not just you know under his control. They, he is literally puppeting them the same way he does with the commands the rats and mm-hmm. you know it's kind of they can't touch the hills because they are not just under his power. They are actually an extension of him. He can't touch the hills, so neither can they or the rats. Yeah, he he plays a pretty good game. I mean, if it wasn't for Glaken in in there casting doubts, he would have got out totally because he he's got Kuza convinced. Uh, he mm. had me convinced, right? Mm. And the fact the only like I I was still down with he's a vampire until he healed uh, our hero and it's like yeah, vampires have the power to heal. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I guess in True Blood, vampire blood can heal people. But that's uh, you know that's a new thing as far as I'm aware. That that fits with what's going on in that show and and those books. Uh, but that's subsequent, right? Well, the question is is how how long a game has he been playing? Did Kuza did Kuza get this rare illness oh. because of him? That's, that's how he has the power cool. to take it away and bring it. He gives it back, gives it to him back, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Uh, so I, I did wonder on this reading, kind of, well, if he is playing a very long game, maybe he's been, you know, if you've got eternity to play with, <laughs> you, know, you can really think these out, these long, long range schemes. And I mean, it's one of the things I love about the book because he's kind of, I know he's not a vampire, but he, he behaves how I think more screen vampires should. That mm-hmm. he is an ageless, you know, a virtual immortal who's had a long time to learn how people tick. And use is that you know plays people like fiddles. <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.